नमस्कार फ्रेंड्स एंड वेलकम टू अथ योग अनुशासनम दिस पॉडकास्ट इज डिवोटेड टू ब्रिंग द एंशंट टीचिंग्स ऑफ योगा टू द वाइल्ड एंड वियर्ड वर्ल्ड ऑफ द मॉडर्न ट्वेंटी फर्स्ट सेंचुरी इट मे सीम एज दो वी आर फ्लाइंग ब्लाइंड बट लकली वी हैव अ रोड मैप इन द फॉर्म ऑफ द वेदास Upanishads, sutras, and tantras that can help us navigate amidst the changing tides of life. We'll be addressing a range of topics related to yoga, from philosophy to practice to lifestyle and Ayurveda, and of course, to current situations and how we can approach them with yogic thought, speech, and action. For more information and questions, visit www.kushyoga.com. That's K H U S H Y O G A. I'm your host Kushi Malhotra. So come on, let's take a look and see what's going on. Namaskar friends. Welcome to another episode of Atha Yoga Anushasanam. Hmm, aren't they few and far between? Why yes, they are. It does take me some time, some encouragement from you all to record new episodes. Honestly, because uh my focus has been on really other creative pursuits and other callings that are just coming through. One of them is something I'm so excited about and really a deeper w- way for me to share as an educator and these are the light on yoga. teachings for advanced study in the yogic practices and our next training is coming up it's a 9 month intensive online from July 2022 until March 2023 this is a program called transmission yogic transmission is a very subtle and beautiful aspect of the practice of sharing meditation and yoga nidra and this training is really about how to become a channel a guide to understand our differing levels of ego consciousness and to drop into a more universal consciousness so that when we share these practices we're actually sharing states of consciousness rather than just rote scripts or memorized words So if you're interested in that do take a look on my website. Another thing that I'm super excited about is the restarting of our Simply Himalaya retreats. Uh our next retreat will be this September 2022 in the Himalayas where I have been living and serving now it will be my 10th anniversary this September so so happy I can celebrate it with bringing people and practitioners over into the Himalayas and into their really glory and splendor the culture the nature the diversity and of course the energy of thousands of years of meditative practice so take a look at that retreat if you're interested and hope to see you at some point in one of my favorite places in the entire world Now getting back to our topic at hand the yama and the niyama our internal and external observances how do we observe ourselves within the inner environment and then as an expression as well in the outer environment through our relationships with other beings on this planet 
the Yama and Niyama are just so beautiful. And I'm very happy to see this trend in yoga teacher trainings in the West of a more emphasis on the Yama and the Niyama. And actually, it's just, uh, you know, the quality of our Yama and Niyama, the quality of our observation of these precepts, one can say, really help us to stabilize in our practice. One of my teachers, Srivatsa Ramaswamy, you know, says that, you know, if your asana isn't working, if your pranayama isn't working, go backwards, take a step back and look at where your foundation is, where are the holes in your foundation of your yama and niyama. Most likely, there are things coming in right? Certain pores coming that are wide open and one needs to contemplate on how to create these boundaries around the yama and the niyama. And so for me, the way in which I understand the yama and the niyama are that they are protections. For me, they are these beautiful ways in which my practice protects me. There's a saying, dharmo rakshati rakshitaha, which means those who protect the dharma are protected by the dharma. And the aspect of protection comes first and foremost, of course, by practice, by observation, by awareness, to know what these are, to know how to practice them, to cultivate them. And then eventually, they have a life of their own. The cultivation of our yama and niyama become just this natural unfolding, this natural deepening subtlety that really grow into these giant banyan trees that give us shade, give us protection, give us comfort, and give us connection to ourselves and to others. So the yama and niyama provide uh, a lovely roadmap for, you know, operation and also the obstacles along the way that uh, to bypass certain ditches, certain sharp objects, certain holes along the way through our remembrance of these yama and niyama, we can really um, find our way with minimal obstruction on our path. Many people, you know, like to go and jump right into asana, pranayama, you know, dharana, dhyana, etc. And it's a, it's a natural phenomenon. You go, you go more into the physical or the energetic practices, maybe without stabilizing yourself, right? I remember when I was first at the Himalayan Institute, very young and naive, definitely. Um, we were sitting in the lecture hall and... Panichi had asked me in front of all of these people, you know, if we were to restart civilization all over again, you know, how would we do it? What would be the first things that uh, we would do after basic necessities are met, etc.? And I, of course, was, oh, you know, we need to teach meditation and, and spiritual life <laughs> and, you know, uh, teach people connection with, with self, with, with nature, with others through, through meditative practices. And uh, he just laughed because, you know, at that point, I hadn't fully understood the important, 
depths of the yama and the niyama for myself, and nor was I practicing at the level that I do now. Um, I went and jumped right into meditative practices in a you know more uh, excited way without understanding that what builds the foundation for everything that I do and for clarifying and purifying my mind are the yama and the niyama. And this is really what Panditji was trying to teach me is that, you know, first and foremost, we need to have a basis of operation. What is the way in which we all agree to operate for minimal harm to occur amidst all beings? And these are really how the yama and niyama come to be. So today, you know, we're going to talk about, of course, the 10 basic yama and niyama that are presented by Sri Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras. But I'm also going to give you a few more that are present in the text, the Yoga Yajnavalkya. It's an older text and has a little bit more of a robust understanding of the way in which we can be protected by our practice. And I really like the, the more overarching themes in the larger sphere of these yama and niyama presented in the Yoga Yajnavalkya because they really, um, they encompass a lot of similarities with the Buddhist precepts as well. And, you know, for me, I love this connection and similarity of these sister streams of yoga and the teachings of the Buddha. So we're going to go into uh, a few more than maybe you have previously been exposed to. So the yama, when we start with the yama, we are starting with the ways in which our interactions with other beings and our uh, way of operation, understanding, and respect for ourselves translates to our respect for all beings. Now, we, of course, everybody knows ahimsa, right? Our ahimsa is uh, a, sometimes translated to nonviolence or non-harming, but I like to translate it as, uh, you know, loving kindness, a sense of deep loving kindness for, for all beings on this planet. And when we embody loving kindness, what we are saying is that uh, we are making an effort not to harm others, not to cause others suffering to the best of our ability, right? Not any intent for suffering for others. And of course, when we intend suffering for others, the very first person and being that suffers is ourselves, right? That's, uh, you know, there's a saying that the Buddha says that, you know, being angry at another is like drinking poison and expecting the other to die, right? So that anger, it burns us first. Our sense of violence or hatred burns us first, right? And then maybe it burns the other. But the very first person that it impacts is the own self. And that creates the this kind of wobbly nature and the foundation of our practice so that even if we are meditating daily and we're not practicing the yama and the niyama, there is some very troubling disconnect that is happening at the level of psyche, 
consciousness and our own thought, speech, and actions. So it's a, you know, these are ways of practicing one's sadhana. You know, your sadhana is not just, okay, let me do asana, let me do pranayama meditation. Definitely, those are the actions of sadhana. But these internal contemplations and readjustments constantly on the path are also part and parcel of very, fundamental building blocks of sadhana the you know in with each of these yama and niyama when patanjali is talking about them he also re- refers to you know what are the siddhis these kind of powers that we receive from practicing the yama and the niyama so what are what is the siddhi that we receive from practicing ahimsa and he says in the company of a yogi established in non-violence, non-harming, loving-kindness, animosity vanishes. And that means that the vibrational field of a person who is really situated in ahimsa is vibrating loving-kindness, that there is, cannot be any field of animosity around them, that all beings around them feel the presence of this loving kindness and their own hatred and their own violence begins to diminish, right? So this is what I mean about dharma rakshati rakshitaha. Your dharma, your observances of these yama and niyama in accord with the laws of nature begin to first and foremost, not only protect you, but you become a protector of your environment. You become a protector of your community just by the very essence and establishment of who and what you are and who and what you stand for, right? Not just intellectually or conceptually, but through the way in which you conduct yourself. So ahimsa is, you know, so beautiful, such a foundational practice and can be cultivated and becomes, again, more and more subtle as we practice, more and more delicate, more and more fine and refined towards each and every being, not just human beings, visible, invisible, human, non-human, all aspects of beings in and on this planet. The next yama that uh, Patanjali speaks of is satya, right? When we are speaking about satya, we many times the gross understanding is, okay, just speaking truth or not lying. And as you know, that is not so clear, right? What is truth? And if my truth is... <laughs> different than another person's truth, then how do we reconcile? And the way I like to look at it is satya and ahimsa really go hand in hand. It's not just speaking factually or honestly, but speaking for the welfare of all beings. Speaking for the welfare of all beings. May all beings benefit from my words. Right? And that loving kindness is inherent in what you say, the vibration of the words in when, when they leave your mouth, toward, mouth towards other beings as well. And Patanjali says, when a yogi is established in truthfulness, actions begin to bear fruit. 
When a yogi is established in truthfulness, actions begin to bear fruit. When you are speaking for the welfare of all beings, that means limiting harsh speech, limiting speech that is slanderous, that is backbiting or gossiping, and limiting also excessive speech, knowing when to speak, right? And giving space for others. Establishing yourself as well in the feeling of benefit for all beings when you do speak and clarity for yourself that may these words provide clarity by expression of these words may I receive clarity through my action of sharing when we establish ourselves in satya what this means is that there is an alignment between our thoughts our speech Right? And as thoughts and speech come into alignment, then actions also follow from there. Oftentimes we think one thing, we say another thing, and we do a third thing. Right? And this is why I love being around children is because they watch your actions, they watch how you do things in the more subtle realms, and not so much what you say. Right? So they really are a nice uh, you know, board upon which we can see whether our satya is truly established or not. And satya begins to become also more subtle. Okay, not only am I speaking for the welfare of all beings, but I'm in alignment with satya, in with the truth of the laws of nature, the truth that suffering does exist the truth that all things are impermanent in this world. So when I'm in observance of satya, I'm in observance of the changing phenomenon of my mind, of my energy, of my body, and of the things and people and beings that are part of my life, that nothing lasts forever. This is really the, one of the highest satyas, that all is impermanent. The third yama that Patanjali speaks about is asteya, asteya. And we translate that to not taking or not stealing what is not ours, right? And this really helps to limit uh, what uh, is one of the obstacles of the mind, which is envy or jealousy. When we see something that another has, we wish to take it or we wish to bring them down, right? To not be joyful about their accomplishments or their whatever it is that they have, right? So in asteya, it's not just stealing objects, but also not stealing others' intellectual rights, property, others' thoughts, others' experiences as our own, Right? Being uh, with the sense of truthfulness in terms of what we have is what we can speak for. Right? And recently, you know, in the last decade or so, we see this happening everywhere in terms of an awareness that's arising, especially around yoga. Oh, it's not okay just to take what we like in yoga and then leave the real beating heart of yoga you know, cast it aside on the street for anyone to trample on. It's really important to protect, to preserve, right, the entirety of yoga and carry that on as practitioners. 
and not just take, you know, things from other cultures and mix and match them according to very surfacial understanding of what these practices can do for us, right? So a real deep understanding of not taking what is not ours and asking permission when we are not sure are we, you know, are we humble enough to ask permission to, to uh, embody these practices or to use someone else's words, right? All of these things are a way of humbling the ego so that we are not jealous or envious of, of others. And Patanjali says, when a yogi is established in non-stealing, all gems manifest, when we are not colored by the clouds of envy and jealousy, we have an ability to receive abundance for ourselves. There's no, you know, this klesha, this obscurity that happens in our mind of lack that begins to transform itself into a feeling of abundance, that I do have everything, each and everything is in place in what I need in this world. And let me make the best use, the most use of what it is that I do have in this moment. The next yama is brahmacharya. Brahmacharya, walking in the footsteps of Brahma. Brahmacharya is interesting, you know, the people often speak of it, oh, okay, the, is it celibacy? Is it abstaining from sexual action? Or is it moderation? You know, it depends. It depends on what phase of life you're in. It depends if one is a grihastha, a householder. That means you hold a place in this world that has a home environment that you're creating for yourself, your partnership. And if you have children, your children. Right, so brahmacharya varies according to according to the text, according to what phase of life that you're in, and it's meant to again protect you because it's meant to protect your energy. I like to think of brahmacharya as a way of wise moderation. That I, you know, I enjoy the things of the world. I enjoy this body, definitely, because I have a body. I'm not floating around in the astral plane. You know, there's a reason I have this body, and I use it for the enjoyment through the senses, but in moderation. Because when things go in extremes, either through uh, extreme pleasure or extreme suppression, right, it drains my energy. And Patanjali says, a yogi established in restraint, that means moderation of my sense doors, gains virya. Virya is the energy and the enthusiasm, right, to do one's dharma, to follow, right, one's practice in this world, in this life, and one's service to oneself, one's family, and the larger sphere of this earth. So you may have so many ideas and so many ways in which you want to do things in this world, but all of those things from the manifestation from thought to action requires tremendous vidya. And for those of you who are 
educators and teachers in the yoga world, this is even more important for you because it's not only just energy and enthusiasm to do the tasks that you need to do in this world, but it's the energy and enthusiasm to transmit wisdom and knowledge, right? So when we are established in brahmacharya, it gives us that moderation. It takes all of the dissipated energy and cultivates it through the central channel so that we can transmit in an honest and pure way as a channel. Aparigraha. Aparigraha is the essence of non-grasping or non-possessiveness, right? And it really helps us to counteract the feeling of greed, not having enough and wanting to you know, hoard or accumulate or crave, you know, the objects of this world, especially, and even spiritual attainments, you know, these superpowers in, in the spiritual world that we, maybe some of you have gotten attracted by, that that is what I want. I want the pleasure. I want only the things that feel good in the practice. This is not the practice. The practice is all-inclusive of the very diversity of being, right? The Buddha says, for us to become liberated, we need to experience all aspects of what it means to be human. From the very most dark and painful to the very lightest and ethereal understanding and being able to hold that spectrum of experience without grasping, without possessing it, is what helps us to regain this balance of mind and balance of energy. And aparigraha, that sense of non-possessiveness, Patanjali says, with a firmness in it, in aparigraha, comes complete understanding of the whyness of birth. And this is a wonderful question that all of us seekers have. Why do I exist? How did this come to be? Why is it necessary? This whole thing that is happening, this maya, this illusion, this constant push and pull, all of this suffering, why, why, why? Through our practice of aparigraha, through constant understanding of renunciation, vairagya, renunciation of not only the fact that this body is impermanent and will decay and will die, right? Are we possessing this body? Are we obsessing about staying youthful? staying young, you know, keeping the body in a certain way that we were in our, you know, teens and 20s, this obsession with not aging, establishing ourselves, this firmness in understanding the beauty of all of the stages of life, that the body does move through a final release, right, first and foremost. And then everything that we acquire in this world it's not going with us, you know. I can't take all of my objects of the world with me into whatever happens post, you know, after death. So what is it that I really truly need in this moment for prosperity, abundance, for myself and for others, but no more than that, right? Just enough 
that I am not extracting the resources from this earth in a greedy or possessive way, right? And we see this very much how extractive we have become as human beings. And it's a, a real, uh, you know, explanation of an, and a real a clear view of this grasping and, and greed that is present uh, right now uh, and the suffering that many, many beings are, are going through because of it. When we begin to understand that nothing is really ours to hold, right, through contemplation of aparigraha, that, oh, right, the body is impermanent. Oh, right, none of this stuff is really mine. Oh, right, these titles, these honors, these things that I accumulate are useful in the world until they're not. <laughs> they, only, they only have a certain shelf life, right? And from after that, they're expired. When I understand that, that means I, my energy is not so focused on external accumulation, right? And that it can be used and cultivated to contemplate, contemplate these deeper questions of the whyness of birth, right? Those things become clearer and clearer and clearer. So these are the five yama, ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, and aparigraha that Patanjali really uh, shares in the Yoga Sutras. Of course, they are not uh, unique to yoga. You know, neither the yama or the niyama are unique to yoga. They appear in Buddhism, they appear in Jainism, they appear in many Western traditions, mystic traditions as well. And they just provide this foundational framework of just how not to be a jerk, right? Of how to be a decent human being that really has a level of self-respect for, for, of course, oneself, and then a respect for, for all beings on this planet and Earth, Mother Earth herself. In the Yoga Yajnavalkya, we, you know, we find that there are a few more yama that... Uh, uh, the Rishi, the sage Yajnavalkya talks about. And he, he speaks about, you know, it's a conversation between him and his wife. And a lot of these texts are conversations between, you know, you can say, um, you know, two partners, so to speak. And these, these conversations present a, a nice dialogue and present the questions that we ourselves may have according to what is, you know, the nature of reality and how do we pursue it in a way that is integrated and holistic. So another one that is very similar in, in the, the realm of ahimsa is dea. Dea is our feelings of compassion, right? Deep compassion and deep love for all beings. It's really an antidote to cruelty, right, or apathy that I only think about maybe myself and, you know, whatever happens for future generations, they can deal with it. Whatever happens to other beings, they can deal with it. And it's only about me and my life. When we really start to develop and cultivate compassion, you know, of course, there are many compassion exercises, loving kindness exercises, but... I also want to be very clear that these are both 
all these yama and niyama are entryways into yoga, and they are byproducts of our practice. That they are naturally, as we begin to practice daily, they naturally come. You know, they naturally deepen. They naturally become more subtle so that we are not doing or practicing the yama or niyama, but we just begin to be them. They are a part of our nature. And when we start to develop compassion and understand that, you know, all of us beings are interconnected, that there is nothing that I do that doesn't affect right, everything around me, that all beings are similar, all emotions are present in beings from this country, from that country, we all experience sadness, we all experience hatred, we all experience envy, we all experience joy, happiness. These basic emotions are present in each and every one of us. And that compassion comes from understanding that there is a similar thread that runs through the fabric of humanity and beyond. And that we can begin to see ourselves in the footsteps of another. That compassion helps us to create this very deep interwoven thread that runs from our hearts to the hearts of all beings. Another yama mention is arjava. Arjava is uh, the ability to be sincere, straightforward, that there is a, a level of clarity and no hypocrisy, right, in your, your thought, speech, and action. Similar to satya, right, we're going a little bit now more subtly into the qualities here. So this sincerity, this ability to not be a hypocrite and to really follow through on your thoughts, speech, and actions. And also to not try to deceive others. That includes deceiving others about who you are or what you are, right? Um, many times we, our egos like to project an image of self and place that image in the eyes of others around us. And anytime that image gets a little bit broken or challenged, we experience suffering because of this deception, right? Because of this uh, need to be seen or appreciated or looked at as a certain, in, a certain way, in a certain light, in a certain way. So Arjava helps us to, to cultivate that quality of sincere seeking, straightforwardness, right? Ability to be straight, to be clear, to be open, and to let there be a very even balance between, you know, all aspects of who we are. Another is Kshama. Kshama means forgiveness, right? And Kshama Bhav, the energy, the, the emotion of forgiveness is such an essential, pivotal practice, especially in the Buddhist practices. And again, this is why I love to mention these, these extra Yama and extra Niyama because they help us to realize that, oh my gosh, forgiveness really develops one's ability to let go right, to let go of the, 
the hooks that have gotten deep into the internal body and into the subtle body and into our minds themselves. This kshama is developing the qualities of patience, right? Patience for others, especially when they have hurt us, right? Not to react immediately and to really observe the situation as it is. And therefore, not to hold on to past wounds and hurts because of an inability to just have this time for contemplation, right? It really helps us to limit our intolerance for the actions of others and for the actions and, and thoughts of ourselves, too, when we, you know, have these self-deprecating thoughts and self-condemning thoughts. The level of patience and tolerance for my own mind, for the inability of my mind to be still in meditation, for my own body to understand body is not able to do the things I wish it to do, a patience with my own body, a kindness towards my own body. May it be so. May it be, you know, present in the way it needs to be. And therefore, we provide space for each individual, each being to truly be as they are, right? The next yama is dritihi. Dritihi is a wonderful quality on the path and is really uh, present in long-time practitioners. That is fortitude. And we need a lot of this on the path because, you know, contrary to maybe popular belief in yoga, not everything is black or white, meaning that not everything is so binary, right? That there is a lot of in-between. And most of life is in this in-between, these gray areas that we have to try and figure out for ourselves and through the help of our satsang, you know, our sangha, uh, our teachers, the words of our teachers, the words of those we respect, the actions of those we respect, and the words of those who support us along the path, you know, to try and see, you know, what is present, what is the right actions and right efforts for the moment. This fortitude, Dritihi, gives us this immense uh, perseverance. And, you know, this is something I can really relate with that. Now, after being on the path for a little while, not too long, but a little while, that the perseverance is, is really uh, a hallmark of a long-term practice. And what that means is that the path itself is said, it's like a, you know, razor's edge, a sword's edge. And one has to tread it with utmost carefulness and awareness, right? So it's not a fortitude and perseverance that comes from aggressive action and the need to just, you know, plow through the problem or just get through it, which is what um, a lot of the old paradigm was about. Now it's about contemplation and awareness of what and how is it best to use my energy in the moment, each and every moment, right? And that wisdom helps us to develop this fortitude, to develop this perseverance towards what Buddha calls right efforts, not just any efforts, right? And one of the Vipassana teachers, Gwenkaji, has a great example of, you know, 
these friends who decide they're going to row a boat all night and they they they're a little bit drunk and they get in the boat and they start to just you know row 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 all, all night and they're just sweating and sweating and sweating they want to you know get to the other side and in the morning the the light emerges and they realize they never untied the rope from the the dock in the first place so all of their <laughs> intense efforts just you know just totally um for for no use so really understanding that it's the right efforts that matter to to understand that fortitude uh, how we develop fortitude is to continue to cultivate the right efforts for the moment and that gives us the energy to persevere over a long span of time this lifetime lifetimes of our practice itself really expanding even out of just you know what i want to get from my practice now and what i wish to receive from it to giving yourself a spaciousness to let the practice develop slowly with awareness and with wisdom over a long period of time and the dritihi you know like i said it it really helps us to create a quality of balance amongst what is called the worldly winds the dvanda dvandvas the pairs of opposites that patanjali talks about or what the buddha talks about these worldly winds that pull us and push us in so many ways right the the fear and confusion that's caused by them like pleasure and pain loss and gain you know the fame and disrepute honor and insult all of these begin to really activate the nervous system unless we understand that these are the exactly that worldly winds that will blow for a little while but then eventually they stop and change direction and that fortitude helps us to understand that and the last yama that i'd like to talk about is mithahara mithahara is a measured diet right it, it comes alongside this you know sense of brahmacharya you know moderation of the senses so when we talk about the food that we intake neither suppressing or going too excessively and this is where ayurveda really helps us in terms of yoga right the ayurvedic system provides a, a beautiful way of mm, balance right with uh, our intake balance with our rhythms balance with nature and then that balance proceeds to help us to you know build a more clear calm and tranquil mind So you know the mithahara especially in the yogic world there's a lot of fasting and extreme dieting and you know food conflicting food philosophies and mithahara just means measured diet you know according to your needs in the moment right understanding what the body needs developing that level of intuition and also consulting and you know someone who can help you believe in your own self your own ability to come into contact with these bodily needs right and what your body needs according to the seasons according to certain mind states right and how it reacts against these things as well so mithahara is very helpful especially in you know finding the middle path the buddha you know before he became the buddha he went through extreme 
ascetic practices, including eating only one grain of rice. It's said that, you know, until his body became so thin, there, there was not a single ounce of fat left, and you could see the light shining through from the back to the stomach, right? And he realized that, no, 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 this is not the way to understanding self or transformation of consciousness, right? This is an extreme path. And from that, he learned that one must tread the middle path in this world. So mitahara, right, treading the middle path with what it is that you intake, with the way in which you intake, the spirit of thanks and gratitude, the spirit in which you cook and prepare your meals, right? All of these things matter in terms of protecting you and protecting the environment around you. So let's talk now about our niyama, niyama and the yama, the interaction between the two. Some people say internal and external observances, but just having them in a wider realm, again, of these are the protective mechanisms of the uncertainties of the world, right? And how to protect ourselves, protect others, so that we are stabilized in our own practice. So I'll go through again the five niyama according to Patanjali and then add a few extras that are uh, mentioned in the Yoga Yajnavalkya. The first niyama that Patanjali mentions is saucha, right? Saucha is, you know, we can say purity or cleanliness or a sense of, you know, an atmospheric calm that permeates inner and outer, right? Um, the beauty of, of saucha is that it's, it's kind of a bridge from, you know, the internal and the external because there's an external cleanliness and um, clarity that we create in our space around us and that really begins to affect our inner environment. Like I said, we have these bodies, we have these five senses, so of course there's an interaction between the five senses and what is going on in the mind. So sometimes when I'm feeling a little disturbed or distracted, you know, I will make extra efforts to clarify and bring peace to my outer environment. The room that I do my practice in, the larger home that I live in, you know, really begin to set things up and feel things energetically where things should be and allow that purity to arise in my external environment in which I feel peaceful, I feel calm, I feel at ease, right? And then that easiness begins to translate into the inner sphere of my mind, right? Um, in, the, in the text, it says saucha is, you know, often done with the element of water, right? So purifying the atmosphere with water, right? Cleaning with water, cleaning your own body with water, and that helps to wash away, literally, you know, any of the things that have stuck on to you from the previous interactions or previous day, right? And to have that clarity come into your space as well. The internal qualities of this saucha, this cleanliness or purity of mind, Right? I find them, they really, they really come from following the, these, these yama and niyama. They create this, this purity of mind in which you know, there aren't these holes in the sieve, right? That we seal these holes so that 
you know, the unwanted or negative aspects of uh, the energies of the space around us or, or situations around us don't have such an easy way in. And that comes from a variety of things like, you know, um, things like satsang being within the presence of of teachers and guides and within their words and that energy that helps to uplift us and bring our mind you know from the level of maybe manomaya kosha which is our just you know the the mind involved with the senses so much to vijnana maya kosha the mind this is the higher intellect the intellect that can really discern properly between what is truth. And that satsanga and sangha as well, being around your peers who are on this path, can help you to you know, bring the qualities within your mind that promote positivity and a remembrance of the innermost essence of your own self. So Patanjali says from saucha, this purity arises a positive mind and victory over the senses, right? It's, uh, victory is an interesting word. We're not trying to suppress, remember, but really understand that we are the, you know, the ones who guide the senses, that the senses are not you know, pushing and pulling us, but that our own mind can be seated in the chariot of the senses. And in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, there's a beautiful metaphor for this, where there's a, a chariot with these five horses, and if the horses are not given the proper direction and care, they run in all different directions. They do not follow a single stream and understanding between themselves. And this is what happens in our senses and why our minds are so distracted is that we haven't given them the very care and attention that they need to work harmoniously towards one another. That care and attention is given simply through awareness, seeding the mind again and again and again with repeated efforts of awareness of what is happening in this moment, what is coming through the sense doors. And that is true victory over the senses, harmony, an understanding of how they all work together and can work together towards both material, mundane, worldly aims and spiritual aims as well and how all of these things are interconnected. The next niyama is santosha. Santosha is translated to contentment, right? A deep feeling of fulfillment with what we have, right? And it's beautiful, Patanjali says, from contentment comes happiness without equal. When we feel a sense of gratitude for what we have, right? And maybe it's sometimes an effort to feel grateful, you know, when we are not in the mood <laughs> or we feel as though we deserve something better. But the quality of santosha is a recognition that wherever I am in this moment, it's okay, right? Contentment comes from first accepting the okayness of the moment. It may not be wonderful, and it may not also be horrible, right? Most of the time when we feel, feel this disconnect, content, it's from the kind of these middle stages where 
nothing's really happening and I, you know I really want what things to move in one way or the other or these transition moments these limbo stages of life where we're eager for things to change and become better so to speak but being content with just the okayness the stillness the uncertainty the confusion the doubt right that contentment is when we sit our mind in the seat of that contentment and fulfillment with being with whatever is, right, that gives us this happiness without equal. Because this happiness then isn't determinant on external things, right? Things that our senses are gratified by and we receive a little signal in our body and it feels good. But a happiness and a contentment, a feeling of an inner fullness from just being alive, breathing, being present in the body, and the smaller, more quiet victories and joys of life rather than the extreme highs or extreme lows that we are so used to measuring our life by. The next niyama is tapas. Tapas is often translated to as austerity or heat. I like it as heat, right? It's the fire that kind of, you know, gets us going <laughs> in our practice, right? It's the, the burning fire that, you know, is the destroyer of, of the impurities of both physical and subtle impurities in our system. And this fire is really what qualifies the extent to which we are disciplined, right? Discipline is a very important part of the yogic practice. And I always tell myself and my students and others that, you know, better if you do five minutes a day rather than one hour a week, right? Better that you have uh, a thread that is continuous within your practice rather than, you know, going in extremes here and there. And Patanjali in this first chapter really says it so beautifully in one of the sutras. Satu dirga kala nairantarya satkara sevito. Dhridabhumihi. This is the beauty of a understanding and establishing yourself, dhrida bhumihi. Bhumihi is another word for this establishment, like in earth itself, to balance and stabilize in the very core of your being, like the earth itself, right? To establish yourself in your practice, you need a practice that is over a long period of time, continuous, right? That means without any breaks, right? And with devotion, with a level of devotion, right? And this is tapas, right? For me, this is really the, the sutra that refers to what is tapas? Continuous practice over a long period of time, right? With devotion. That devotion may waver day by day, but it's a larger devotion of understanding that the practice continues and the practice is not something that I wish to extract something from, I don't do it to get anything. I do it because of the nature of the essence of the <clears throat> excuse me, desire to seek within myself. 
no matter what arises in the moment, whether it's boredom or exhaustion or whether it's elation and beautiful experiences, right? All of them are worthwhile in the realm of tapas. Because Patanjali says it is this austerity that destroys all impurities which lead to yogic accomplishments, right? So what is it to be accomplished in yoga, right? Tapas helps us to understand that, that through the continuity of our practice and how our understanding of yogic accomplishments in the beginning of our entryway when we were you know, little toddlers in yoga is very different from later on when we've become established in this practice. And I feel that uh, you know, when we take that time, even if it is through shorter sadhanas, like 40 days of deep establishment and continuous practice, it gives us an insight to this beauty of this fire, right? This elemental fire that not only burns impurities, but has the light of wisdom deep within it. So we are invoking that essence within ourselves. Patanjali also speaks about Svadhyaya. Svadhyaya is often translated to self-study. Um, but, you know, actually, textually, it's in, within the text, it's not just self-study, but it's studying oneself in relationship to what you are learning, the texts of yoga, in studying oneself in relationship to mantra, right? So when you study a text, you automatically start to become self-referential, right? You study a sutra, you read something, and it's your nature. It's natural to apply it to yourself, apply it to your life conditions, apply it to your abilities in the moment. And that self-referential nature is svadhyaya, right? It is this ability to continuously study texts in relationship to self and to do this deep, deep contemplation that is so necessary in the yogic practice. And uh, Patanjali says it's this svadhyaya, the self-study. From the self-study comes the opportunity to be in the company of bright beings. I really love this. You know, you, you find... As you develop in your practice and deepen in yama and niyama, and as your practice becomes your dharma, it begins to protect you, you begin to attract those who are like-minded, and you begin to be in the presence of others who are also practicing these very same things. And they become a source of inspiration for you, and you become a source of inspiration for them, and it becomes this larger community of self-transformation through contemplation and through these interactions that you have, right? These bright beings. Also, on the subtle level, right, the, there are beings, all right, that are not tied to any physical body that rejoice in our practice, that rejoice when we study these texts, when we study ourselves, they are attracted to the vibration of the purity of this yama and the niyama, this desire for, you know, becoming the wholest part of ourselves, becoming and integrating the parts of ourselves into wholeness. 
and these bright beings surround us and protect us as well. So that dharma we're speaking of is, you know, not just the barriers of invisible, you know, protection <clears throat> that we create around ourselves, but also that are drawing from, you know, the larger sphere of connection with all beings on this planet. Ishvara Pranidhana. Ishvara Pranidhana is surrender, trustful surrender, you know, trusting the process as it unfolds and a surrender to something other than my ego wants and desires, a surrender to something other than my cravings and aversion, a surrender to something other than I, me, or mine, right? A surrender to something greater than this current perception of I, right? So many have certain belief systems and, and faiths in God or in nature or in their own ishtadevatas, their own personal deities, whatever it is that you surrender to that is beyond the current boundaries of your own understanding of self, right? That can I find some level of this essence nature, right? In Buddhism, the surrender comes to the sky mind, the wide awareness right, that holds all of the arising and passing of thoughts, emotions, experiences, perceptions, etc., right? And in different traditions, you might find that you have your own comfort level with what it is that you can surrender to. It's not a powerlessness, but a deep power that comes from the ability to humble oneself, right? And Patanjali says, from this Ishvara Pranidhana comes trustful surrender, right? From this trustful surrender is Ishvara Pranidhana, and from this trustful surrender comes Samadhi. So Samadhi, a very, I think, misunderstood term. It's not being blissed out, but it's just resting in awareness. Resting in awareness without any push or pull, any, uh, you know, feeling of being drawn out through your senses, but a base equanimity and calm that permeates, you know, your being for a moment or for continuous moments or maybe for an establishment in who you are, you know, completely. So samadhi comes in both states and stages, and it's very present for all beings to uh, experience and doesn't only come in yogic practices or meditative practices, but in other, you know, moments of deep wonder in the world. So when we give up ourselves for a moment, then the mind concentrates, then the mind expands, then the mind allows itself to just be unhooked and free. And that freedom, right, is this byproduct of trustful surrender. So these are the five niyama that Patanjali speaks of. And uh, we'll go on to now what yoga in the yoga yajnavalkya uh, some other niyamas that are also very interesting and important right one of them is astikya or astika astikya refers to uh, just developing faith <laughs> 
faith amidst the confusion and doubts, right? The, of course, in the beginning of the practice, it's definitely, you know, one should question one's teachers, question the practice, question whether it's, these are the right undertakings for myself. And these doubts and, and questions will come up again and again in more subtle and a variety of ways for yourself as you proceed on the path. Very important. But within that, to understand that there are benefits that I receive from this level of self-inquiry that I'm doing. And that most, you know, most of all, I have a faith in this dharma. I have a faith in this yama and niyama. When I practice this, these yama and niyama, something changes within my being. I have a faith in the path to self-transformation, to enlightenment, right? To enlighten, to lighten the load of my mind, to lighten the suffering of my own being. I have a faith in this path that brings me there, right? I have a faith in something, asti, something exists other than just what I can see through my senses, through my eyes, what I can hear through my ears, what I can smell through my nose, what I can think through my mind, touch through my fingers, taste through my tongue. Something else exists beyond that, right? A faith in what exists. Astikya. Another niyama spoken about is dana. Dana is beautiful. Generosity. Donation, right? Giving donations. And something that is very uh, deeply practiced in Buddhist traditions, actually, uh, feeling and spirit of generosity and donations for the teachings, for people, for those in need, right? To understand that, you know, when I give something, also dana means without any expectation even of praise for what I've given, right? I give without any expectation of receiving anything in return. And Buddhism, you know, the, it's recommended, oh, you know, you give whatever you make, 10% of your wealth you give back to as charity for the benefit of others. And wealth does not only mean monetary wealth, but your time is a dana. What you know, your skills is a dana. Your material objects are dana. Your monetary accumulations is a dana. So if you are teaching yoga and these spiritual traditions, considering to donate some of these teachings, you know, for, the, for free, that you earn your income, but you always provide space for dana within that right? Or if it's some skill that you have, you provide space for the spirit of dana in sharing that according to your capacity and your energy level, right? Very important to not give so much that you are so completely depleted either, right? The dana has to be with wisdom always, right? As best as we can, right? To really remediate any burnout from being too much of a giver also to regulating one's ability to give and to receive. The next niyama is mati. Mati is beautiful. It's self-respect. Mm. Faith in self. So we had 
Astakya, which was faith in the Dharma, faith on the path. But with that, we need to really have some self-respect, right? Respect for my own being, my own existence. Respect that I do have a place in this world and I do have the ability to have my own unique path, my own unique way to move through this existence known as life, right? And not only faith in yourself, but a respect enough, a self-respect enough that you take time to contemplate, right? And reflect to reconcile any conflicting ideas within yourself, right? When we say, you know, we have to have self-respect, it really means that we need to take time to understand the conflicts within self. When we take time to do that, that is giving the utmost respect to ourself. That is giving the utmost time for these processes to happen in their own natural way. Everything in this world has its own rhythm, its own way of showing itself, of expressing itself and giving time for those processes within ourselves, giving time to observe our mind and the conflicting ideas in our mind. One moment I love myself, one moment I hate myself. What is this spectrum? What is this thread that connects the two? Let me reflect, let me understand, you know, where I can be more aware in this, in this push and pull between the conflicts of my own self. So mati, self-respect. Another spoken about is hri. H-R-I, Hri. Hri is, I feel, a wonderful prerequisite to studentship. Of course, a lot of these yama and niyama are, you know, um, if, if our students and if, our, if we as students can have these kind of prerequisites into our entry of deeper study, deepening study, whether that is a you know, a YTT program or deepening sadhana, right? It will very much help us. And Hri is the ability to be humble, humility. Humility is, um, it's not meekness and it's not weakness, but the quality of being comfortable with the I don't know. In our Western culture especially, there is a lot of I know, and because I know, let me tell you how much I know, and therefore you should also agree with me and know this as well. It's a perception and understanding that we only know as far as our mind boundary can take us, right? And therefore we don't know that much. And having the quality of humility and humbleness to receive teachings as well, to sit before other teachers, not in a hierarchy or a power dynamic, but to sit in the space of receptivity, of I don't know, and let me receive the teaching, you know, beyond these boundaries and beyond limitations of what my reaction or what my comeback will be, what my thoughts will be, according to what the other has shared. This humility allows 
the a level of studentship that is, you know, grows into, especially when, if it is that you choose to become a teacher, right? And to limit the, the allure of the ego to desire power, praise, and recognition for the teachings that come through you. They are not yours, definitely not yours they come through you through a level of openness and receptivity and once they come through you right they are not yours either they they are gone into the atmosphere and into the receptivity of the space around you and that humility to know i am not the doer I am not the one who is making this whole thing happen. I am a simple channel that allows for teachings to come through or that allows for my service in the world to come through, that allows for my love for my child to come through and that none of it is truly mine. That humility helps us to stabilize the ego in a very healthy way, in a way in which it doesn't demand power for the sake of hierarchy, but creates a level of equality amidst all beings on this planet. Another is japa. Japa is, you know, usually referred to as repetition of mantra. And the repetition of mantras, you know, are, can be very helpful. They help to create a certain atmospheric potential within our own body, within the environment around us. And repeating mantras um, just help to concentrate and stabilize the mind. Mantras are not affirmations, you know. Uh, I think in the common parlance now, modern language now, uh, people are using the word mantra very lightly and superfluously. Uh, mantras are not affirmations, but mantras are heard sacred sounds by enlightened beings that have been shared with the rest of us, right? They, mantra literally means also something that protects us. They create a shield of protection through vibration around us. And one can, if one is so inclined, right, use the mantra recitation known as japa to stabilize, calm the mind and create a level of tranquility both within yourself and your environment and also if you are transmitting these teachings to others. A lot of the time we do this, um, you know, we do what we call invocations. When we start a class or a practice, right, we invoke uh, a remembrance, a repetition of a remembrance of a certain quality that we like to share and spread within ourselves and the environment around us. And then the last niyama I'd like to share with you is vrata. Vrata are the taking of sacred vows. We don't do that much anymore in this culture, you know, especially with yoga. Yoga, <laughs> it's really changed a lot and used to be a very sacred undertaking that was, uh, you know, over a very long, an understanding that it, it really took a very long period of time to develop, right? And now we kind of, you know, piecemeal it all together and call it yoga, but there is a beauty in undertaking vows. 
and undertaking that means even these yama and niyama, that when we sign these codes of conduct with our teacher trainings or with the studios or with, you know, we have a certain code of conduct within ourselves, maybe we write it down. And that undertaking and having others be a witness to that creates a level of accountability within ourselves and a level of accountability in the atmosphere around us that we all agree that, you know, we will cultivate these these vows and these conditions for the benefit and the welfare of all beings, right? So the way in which we undertake the yama and the niyama, the way in which we practice the rituals around these conditions, right? There's a reason why ritual is so important. It helps us to really balance, you know, our very basic instinctual brain through the repetition of certain rituals, repetition of recitation of certain vows, right? Helps us to reinforce and balance, right, our more survival-based instincts towards these aims of the yama niyama all the way up to dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. So, you know, when we start to practice in this way, when you start to contemplate these yama and niyama, you'll begin to see that it is really a vast ocean, unending, unending, unending. The yama and niyama never stop showing more subtlety, more ways in which we can refine and attune to the harmonies which promote balance in this world, right? And the qualities which help us develop longevity in our practice. So again, if you find that asana is not working as well as it can, mind is still imbalance, pranayama is not working, meditation is not working, right? Take a look at the yama and the niyama and see what potential there might be in stabilizing yourself in a very deep and profound practice of yoga. Thank you so much for listening and I hope this was helpful to all of you and do take care do find your way, you know, through the confusion and doubt as a way of the practice itself, a way of understanding self through all the myriad of emotions, sensations, and qualities unique to you. Take good care, everyone, and until next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Atha Yog Anushasana. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing and reviewing this podcast on Apple. This really helps me and the podcast get a bit more traction amidst all of the noise out there. Also, if you would like to donate to help support the podcast, you can do so by going to www.kushyoga.com backslash support. Until next time, my friends, take good care.